you have landed on the one and only podcast where you'll learn about the people and places that inspire life-changing travel. This is Dramatic Travels. Hello, my friend, Aaron Schlein here, and you have landed on episode number 17 of the Dramatic Travels podcast, your weekly dose of family travel inspiration. Dramatic Travels is here not only to inspire you to travel with your kids, but also to provide you with the resources and support to help make your family travel dreams take flight. The Dramatic Travels podcast regularly features entertaining interviews with the world's most passionate travelers, and this episode is no different. My guest this week is Emily Gaudreau. Emily is the host of the How to Raise a Maverick podcast, and I invited Emily on the show because I love talking to people who challenge my point of view. I consider myself a fairly progressive parent, but chatting with Emily made me realize that I'm far more conventional and conservative, quite frankly, in certain areas than I realized. My chat with Emily was a whole lot of fun, and I think you're going to enjoy it too. You can check out the notes from this episode at dramatictravels.com slash 017. All the links, all the resources, the timestamps, all the good stuff from this episode, and there's a lot of good stuff. It's all there waiting for you at DramaticTravels.com slash 017. This is a two-part episode, and if you're listening to this on the day it goes live and you just don't want to wait till tomorrow for part two, you're in luck. Just head over to DramaticTravels.com slash 017, and both parts of this episode are right there waiting for you to enjoy right now. Now, all right, my friend, off we go. Sit back and enjoy my chat with Emily Gaudreau from How to Raise a Maverick. Please enjoy yourself. Dramatic Travels family, I'm super excited to introduce you to today's guest, Emily Gaudreau. Emily, are you ready to share your dramatic travels? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, ma'am. So ready. Emily is the mother of four and the wife of one. Emily is the host of How to Raise a Maverick, a podcast where she explores the challenges of raising kids with work ethic, grit, and empathy, so they become adults with a strong moral core and a lust for life. Emily describes herself as a serious budget traveler who hates the beach. Emily, welcome to Dramatic (laughs) Travels. That's your official bio. First of all, straight out of the gates, Emily, what on earth is a maverick? Oh, um, and well, I can go the funny story about a Maverick in my mind, it's a kid. It has just really rock solid in their morals and society can push all they want. And they just have the work ethic to work their way out of a crazy situation or stand up for what's right. And, you know, work ethic, empathy. But the original story is a Maverick is an unbranded cow. I think it was like Robert Maverick was the first maverick ever to not tag his cows so he he was kind of seen as this rebel and i like the analogy of the well, i mean maverick just drums up top gun and for <laughs> men and bad kid for moms <laughs> that's usually and i have to go no it's really about an unbranded cow <laughs> how'd you settle on that name for your podcast you know i I decided that 
you know, I, w- I was kind of funneling into what I, the concept of what kind of kids we were raising. And I'm very much a free range parent and I promote free range parenting and I'm certified to teach positive discipline and um, I'm a sex educator and all kinds of sex positive educator and all these kinds of things. And I was like, well, what, how do we encompass all of this? And what describes somebody who could be in a situation that it, they realize they have the curiosity to dive in and go, wow, this isn't, this isn't right. I don't care what everybody else is doing. All the, unbra- all the other branded cows, <laughs> they have the ability uh, to appear to conform, to navigate through society. But at the end of the day, they're going to be like, nah, I don't care. How, I don't care how much money I'm going to lose. I'm not participating in that. I don't care if everybody is doing something. Um, I talk a lot about pornography as being kind of this, it's a new drug and having the ability to say, I don't care if everybody else is doing it. I'm not going to participate. Tell me about free range parent. Just let's just define that term before we move on. Yeah. So I think the the best way to describe it is Lenora Skenazy uh, is a writer in New York, and she wrote a story about letting her son run the, ride the subway home when he was seven years old alone. So though they had gone out shopping. He was like, I want to I want to figure out how to get my own way home. And they were like, oh, OK, he'd done it 100 times before with them. He had money. He had a phone, whatever. And they said, yeah, go ahead. Lenora wrote an article about it. And it was instantly taken up by all the news channels. She's been dubbed the worst mother of America. This was a long time ago. And that is how the free range parent hatched. Lenora Skenazy kind of coined the word. And it's letting your kids do things like go to the store and buy milk and play at the playground and, you know, um, maybe sit in the car while you go in and buy a carton of milk. So it's a it's um, it makes people pretty uncomfortable, but it's about letting kids have autonomy and responsibility and really believing it in them to be that they have the capacity to do these things. Well, sure. I got to be honest just about the thoughts that are going on in my head while you're describing that. And I don't tell me if you if you get this a lot. I'm freaking out about those things, but not because of those activities themselves, the letting the kids go to the store or sitting in the car. It's the public reaction or even the private reaction within my own family of saying, hey, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to let the kids go to the store and then having to deal with that blowback. Tell me about that. Well, it's interesting because in Utah, they just uh, basically decriminalized free range parenting. So in the past, you I mean, even still in I don't know, I, I don't know where are you where are you calling out from calling me from Sacramento, California. <laughs> OK, California. Yeah. I'm in Colorado. If we send our kids out to go play at the playground, somebody's probably going to call social services and say these kids are being neglected, blah, blah, blah. Utah just lifted a band on that or not a band or I don't you know, basically your kids can't be taken away from you just because you let them go to the park or you let them in, sit in the car when they're, you know, seven years old while you run into, I mean, obviously not in a hot car. I mean, that's the first thing I sure. think of, but, um, it, you know, a responsible parent saying, I'm going to go in and get uh, a carton of milk when it's actually safer for them to stay in the car than navigate through the, uh, parking lot. So yeah, judgment. So the, it's, it's really a movement to get people 
honestly, the more we talk about it, the more people like you are saying, I would do it. I just feel like I'm going to be ostracized. That's kind of the way it is. But really, the the clear difference that I'm seeing is just a calculated decision versus like what you described, just pure neglect. This is a calculated decision. I'm doing this intentionally. I have an inten- I have an outcome that I expect from this, uh, or at least I have, there's a negative outcome that I don't expect from this as opposed to just, I'm just going to leave my kids in the car because I'm just lazy and don't feel like bringing them in. I don't care how hot it is. Right. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's been stories. Lenora's uh, a good friend of mine, and she tells me, you know, everybody contacts her with these horror stories, so I get to hear some of those. But somebody who had a death in the family was up all night, kind of at a wake, and slept in. Her seven year old son got up in the morning. It was time to go to school. Mom was still sleeping, so she slept in, and he walked a mile to school. He, you know, people are calling the police or whatever, he gets picked up by a police officer and she gets taken into jail and questioned because she had overslept and her seven-year-old son decided to walk to school. Kind of a real world version of Home Alone where the parents end, yes. up, <laughs> the parents end up getting arrested instead of you know, hugs and kisses at the end. Yeah, totally. totally. And it's 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 a, I, I, I just, I think that we need to give parents the benefit of the doubt. You know, 99.9% of parents have their kids' best interest at heart. There are there are some other cases, but that's not what we're talking about. This is everybody on one hand, everybody's complaining that our kids are completely incapable when they get to college. And then on the other hand, you can't let your kid cross the street alone when he's like 14 years old. I know so many parents who have a horrible time like, oh, we can't do that. I'm afraid to, to cross the street or I'm afraid that the human traffickers are going to come and sweep them up. And like there's all there's I mean, there's some real fears there, but the stats just aren't behind it. This is the safest time in the U.S. since the 1960s, according to the FBI reports, adults what? and kids. That is remarkable when not everyone believes the stats though. I, I'm a numbers guy myself. I, I definitely tend to believe the numbers and especially when it comes to other people. And this, this is really where just the emotion jumps into it. When you're talking about rec- making recommendations to other people. Yeah. Well, 95%, you know, there's 95% chance that this is never going to happen. But then all of a sudden when it's, it's you and you're the one in that situation, it's just, something changes and it's really hard to extract yourself from that. But, and I, I'm with you hundred percent that we need to try. What, what, what do you recommend when, when people, the emotions are just too darn high. I just can't extract myself from this situation. I know there's a, the, ch- the chances of my kid getting hit across the street are minimal, but I just can't get that image out of my head of them getting you know plowed over by, by a semi truck. What do you, what do you say to that? To me, it's it's all about preparing the kid. If you've got a kid that is incapable of intelligently crossing the street and being aware, yes, you should be very concerned and your child should not cross the street. So just like when I'm really scared to go skiing or water skiing, what do I do? I prepare myself. I learn, you know, whatever. So you get your kid and you go out and you practice. I this is this is kind of a silly trick that I do with my daughter. I close my eyes. And she is in charge of getting me across the street safely. That is so cool. I'm totally trying that. (laughs) Yeah, because I'm with her and she's responsible for me. So 
it also teaches her not to completely rely on us just because she's with an adult. She can't just tune out because that's the most dangerous thing that can happen in our neighborhood is her getting hit by a car. And it's also, you know, when you're traveling abroad, just the ability to go regardless of what traffic laws are, because, you know, I don't know if you've traveled in Vietnam or anything like that. It's just all of that goes out the door and you just have to adapt to what's going on there and be honed in yourself. <laughs> just be smart. It's street smart, right? I agree. It's and like that's the- a, that's a piece of advice I could give to, to parents traveling with their kids. Once your kids reach a reasonable age and by reasonable, I mean five ish, let them navigate the airport with you in tow. I'm not suggesting that you leave them alone and say, Hey, I'm I'll see you at the gate, but just say, okay, our next flight leaves out of C4. Get me to C4. And Perfect. I've, yeah. In my experience, the kids come through. They struggle a little bit at first because they're like, wait a minute, I you do that. That's that's your job. But then once they kind of realize, okay, I'm I've got to do this, they they tend to rise to the occasion. Does that sort of fit in with this maverick mentality, this free range mentality that kids rise to the occasion? Yes, it's completely, completely in line. And I mean, and also with the free range would be like as they as they get older and it's more appropriate to let them actually do that on their own. But um, it's also a really great idea to change your statements when talking to your kids to questions. So this this is a huge, huge thing that's been kind of a turning point for me when I use it. I'm a, I'm a serious. Um, can I cuss on you? No, I won't cuss. Um, I'm a hard parent, <laughs> hard beeping parent. Yeah, you can just imagine. So what, I, uh, what goes between hard and parent? Yeah, um, it's it's very difficult for me to take any uh, any attitude or anything like that. But I'm learning if I ask questions, what needs to happen now? What do you think should we? What do you need to do to make this work? What do you need to do to get ready for this? Instead of saying, do this, do that, do this. So what they're, what I want is kids that have the ability to be critical thinkers. And if you are just telling them all the time, the coach is just telling them all the time, the teachers are just telling them all the time, there's no room for critical thinking. You know, like where, where do we need to go next? I don't know. Well, let's better figure it out. And at first they don't know because they're so used to being told and then after a while, they get to where they realize they've got to be more involved and they, they their brains fire up quicker. I love that firing up. That's, that's just... Firing that, up. That. So Emily, speaking of asking questions, uh, let's go ahead. Let's dive into to your background and p- particularly your travel background, as this is the Dramatic Travels podcast. Emily, what is your earliest travel memory? Go back to your childhood and uh, tell us about a early memory and why it was so memorable. So one of the things that's been popping up lately is we, my family, they're they're foodies. My family actually owns a food processing plant and they own a really lovely place in Matzalan. So every year for Christmas, we would go down to Matzalan, Mexico, and we would buy seafood off of the fishers on the beach. And during the day, we would, or I mean, kind of towards the afternoon, we'd start a huge fire. And this is when I was 
little, you know, really little all the way up to like 14. We'd start a fire on the beach and then we would go and get palm leaves and, you know, kind of smother the fire a little bit and put all the seafood on the palm leaves and put another palm leaf on top. And basically it's, it's a clam bake and you'd pour water on it and the whole thing steams. Obviously there's rocks underneath, so those stay hot and all this amazing, amazing seafood that was caught that day, kind of freshly cooked on the beach and uh, cousins and my brother and I like dipping shrimp and fish and butter and garlic and running around and eating sand or whatever you do when you're a kid, <laughs> digging holes, digging holes. Why do kids dig holes all the time in the beach? <laughs> because it's fun. Because <laughs> there's nothing else to do. Yes. Well, that's, that's, <laughs> that's an interesting point. I, I never really thought about it that way. Yeah, there is nothing else to do. And heck, let's let's dig a hole. But they, you manage to entertain yourself. And when you have a hole, you have you have hours of entertainment. Right. Like we're like dogs. Kids are like dogs on the beach. Well, that's what we, we <laughs> took our dog in for, for training several years ago. That's she. She The trainer told us dogs dig when they're bored. And I, apparently uh, children do, too. Yeah. And adults when they're bored on the beach. Going back to beaches are just not my jam. Even I mean, that's. Eating fresh seafood on the beach like that is amazing, but to this day, I just, I cannot stand laying in the sun for hours. I can't do, I don't care about being tan that much. (laughs) (laughs) There's so much cooler things to do. Just saying. Well, you did make a point in your bio to let the world know that you hate the beach. So now we know why, but we also know there's a a caveat to that. We get you in the evening time around a bonfire with some seafood and some palm leaves, and you might be able to get Emily on the beach. Exactly. Exactly. Well, that's awesome. You got me, uh, got me a little hungry there with, uh, with that description of your, of your clam bake, especially the garlic. That's so good. I know. Mm, can you so just, good. Can you just go back there in your mind, or like when you? What, what about when you smell a, like garlic cooking today, or a clam bake? Do you, can you close your eyes and go back to the beach there in Mazatlan? Yeah, and also um, coconuts. You know the fresh cracked coconuts, and they would sell mangoes on sticks that had been peeled and rolled in chili and salt and sugar. Oh, it's so good. You are speaking my street, language. I know street food, beach food. That's awesome. Probably, yeah, probably not this. I wouldn't say that that would be like the safest food to eat in Mexico. <laughs> but <laughs> roll the dice, Mavericks. Roll the dice. That's right. <laughs> so let's talk about people in your life, Emily. Especially when you were growing up, and and particularly when you were traveling. Is there a specific person who comes to mind when I ask you about a specific travel inspiration? You know, I think I think I would have to be tied back to my grandparents. They were part of this group called Port-A-Call and they would get like a little badge every or a like a little plastic thing that would hang off their name tag when they went to new countries and China and Kenya and Peru and all these cool places. And my grandma would always buy me a doll, even though I'm not, I mean, I'm not really a doll person or ever was, but I had a collection of dolls all over the world from all over the world. And I remember going in, they had that kind of study area and this long list of places that they had gone and I guess I think that's the only that's got to be where I got my travel bug from. 
I don't know why. I don't know why. And I don't know about somebody, but I always love the idea of like running away on a train. <laughs> what was it about the train particularly? Like the like the old school hobos that would. That's probably not the right word to use these days, but back then, you know, they would get on the trains and they were just like these free spirits that would just travel um, and have little campfires and eat hot dogs and drink coffee. I don't know. (laughs) I saw this awesome show and got my, for the life of me, I can't remember where I saw it, but it was about this gentleman. He was, I believe he was the CEO of a, a big company and he was really wealthy, lived in a big house, had a great life. And every year he would take off for months at a time to be a hobo, to literally be a hobo and ride the rails. And they would have names like their hobo names. And he had a hobo Mm -hmm. name and they had special markings. And it really went pretty deep into the, you know, the underworld, the hobo underworld. And it was really, really interesting. And then to see this guy then at the beginning of his you know, his month or two sabbatical. And then when he would come out at the end, go back home, clean up and go back to being a CEO is really fascinating stuff. I don't know. That might be something that's up your alley if you ever have a, a free evening for some Netflix. So so it's a documentary. So it's a real guy. It was a re- no, real guy. It was absolutely a real wow. guy. And I, off the top of my head, I, th- I haven't thought about this in, in years, but so I don't know the name off the top of my head, but it was super interesting if you come across it. Well, my brother and I, I, you know, actually it wasn't, I don't, I wasn't with my brother, but I, I'm pretty sure, pretty sure he would do it as well. We lived near some railroad tracks in the mountains here in Colorado. This was pre nine 11 before, you know, when they would allow you to go on the railroad tracks and when the train would come, we would chase it or chase alongside of it. And then when you got to the latter part, you'd hang on. So basically you would, we, you know, hitch the train, but the scary part is getting off of it. And it actually goes a lot faster. It, they seem like they go pretty slow, especially up the mountains. But when you're trying to decide on a good spot to jump off, it takes a long time. And you could go miles and miles and miles up into the mountains before you get the courage to jump off. It's really hard to jump <laughs> off. <laughs> I can imagine. It's like, this- oh, no. And it's all greasy and dirty and like the toilets flush out onto the track. So you just uh, you're afraid you're going to land on something horrible. That always, uh, that, always, that always fascinated me about the trains in Europe. And, it, but those toilets that you just described, there's just something about, yeah, they open, they, if you've out there in podcast just, land, if you've never been on one of these trains, you flush and a trap door opens and whatever's in the toilet drops right out onto the tracks. We used to, when I, we were kids, <laughs> we would wad up a bunch of paper, flush it and then run to the back of the train to, to see the paper that we had dropped and it was sitting in the middle of the tracks and why that was fascinating. It was about as interesting as digging a hole on the beach, but we loved it. It's pretty weird. I think it's pretty weird considering, considering all that's involved there. It's pretty gross. <laughs> it really is. But that's the simple solution to a very real problem. Yep. So, well, speaking of scary, it, scary moments, mm-hmm. Can you describe a scary or a tense moment from your travels to something that really made a lasting impression on you? What happened and what did you learn? I've got it. I've got a couple, but I'll start with the most recent. My daughter was under a year old and we had, we were kind of on the tail end of a really long trip. We had spent we bought a camper and we spent three months kind of going through the southern um, eastern United States. 
And then we flew over to New Zealand and spent a couple months there. And then we flew into Fiji, which is going to be kind of the culmination of our whole trip. And we, uh, we decide we're going to go to this island. And what's, what's that movie with Tom Hanks? And he's got Wilson, the, uh, Castaway. the volleyball castaway. Okay. So it was right next to the castaway Island and we got off our ferry and everybody was so excited that we had a baby with us. And so they gave her a little seashell necklace thing and they gave it to each of us and we're so excited and they're taking pictures. Well, meanwhile, we're taking these pictures and I'm kind of, you know, dealing with getting off the ferry. My daughter's eating the seashell necklace and I look down and I'm like, oh my gosh, she's like gagging on this like tune up shells were going down her mouth. I can laugh about it now. So she kind of coughed it up, whatever we were fine. But I was like, oh my gosh, like it could have been really, really bad. And she ended up being fine. And then we got to our room and we paid up. We really paid up for a nice place and it was awful. (laughs) And there was no air conditioning. And my daughter came down with some kind of illness and she had this huge rash on the front of her. Her fever was through the roof. And there was literally like a ferry to this island every four days. So you were stuck. <laughs> so there. we were stuck. And it ended up, I think she honestly, I think she just had a heat rash. And she'd probably gotten a little bit of fever from, you know, the fairies are kind of gross or something. And she crawls everywhere and maybe eating seashells. <laughs> It was like, oh, everything. We're trying to keep her cool and there's no air conditioning. So that was scary. I think that was the first time I've ever traveled where my child, I was scared of medical issues with my child because we were in a foreign country. Um, And it was hard. It would be really hard to get out. But, you know, it ended up being fine. And they actually had a medical facility there. And but you know, when it's your baby, it's totally different. Well, yeah. And medical, I mean, medical concerns as a parent, those are in your, you're thinking about that sort of stuff all the time, but then take it to another level when you're traveling and then take it to, in your case, an even higher level when you're on this remote secluded Island with very limited ways to get off. What was going through your head? I mean, and then finally, you know, with years gone by, tell me what you, what you learned looking back on it. Well, the the biggest thing that was a concern for me is I have an I have an autoimmune disease called ulcerative colitis, and I had a really bad reaction to the MMR vaccine when I was a kid. I didn't inoculate her against things that were curable in a hospital, and so she's got polio and a few other things. But that freaked me out. Just the responsibility that she wasn't inoculated, and we were in this, you know, foreign place. And I was, that added a level of intensity, like, Oh my gosh, did I make the right decision? And all that kind of stuff. And I want to say on the same trip. So this is kind of a crazy story. We had checked into, um, another, we went to another place in Fiji that was nicer, more on the mainland kind of resorty. And we walk in, we're super excited. It's gorgeous. You know, it's got all these pools and all these restaurants. And then this woman comes carrying this limp child screaming, you know, call an ambulance. And I just 
at the time I was like, I just want to go home. I just felt so sick. And I found out later, I talked to the husband, he was at the pool and he was like, oh yeah, he had a seizure because he had had inoculations before he went. And it was in response to the inoculations. So it was kind of this like, it was scary not having the inoculations. And then it was also watching people who did have the inoculations kind of like, oh, I think I did the right thing. Yeah. Not that you're going to find any joy in other people's suffering, but it's just so interesting that right there on that same trip, you got to see the other side of the coin. Cause I was, I was just about to ask you actually to close the loop on your choice not to inoculate that you actually went through something that maybe very few parents actually do where you're second guessing yourself in a real heated sort of moment than to see this other child have an equally rough time because of the inoculation. That must've been a real, just a real trip for, for all of you. Yeah. It, well, the seeing the, the kid who had a seizure, I mean, honestly, he looked like he was not alive when I saw him, but it really did make me feel like I made the right choice. It was almost like a sign, like just chill out. Don't worry. There's two sides to every coin. Like just because you take a certain medicine, it doesn't mean you're going to be free of side effects. And if you don't, doesn't mean you're not going to get it. You know, it's like, it's kind of being straight up. It's being a parent, no matter what you do, you're screwed. <laughs> That's what it felt like. Well, just to sum this all up, what would be, what would be one just real quick final piece of advice for any parents out there who are concerned about or have health concerns with uh, traveling with their children? I think it would be wise just to do a little research ahead of time and figure out, you know, it was a, it was a shocker to me that once we got on the Island, they're like, Oh, you know, it's going to, it's going to be four days before anybody comes back. I don't know if I knew that before, you know, I didn't really look to see what the medical facilities were there once we got there. So I, you know, if I had done a little bit of research beforehand, I think I might've been a little bit more relaxed or just knowing what I was getting into. Um, and I'm a big believer in bringing your own medicine, not necessarily over the counter stuff. Cause you can get a lot of that stuff anywhere in the world, but more of the naturopathic type medicines that especially with kids, that's really hard to come by. If you've got real littles, just take your own medicine everywhere. Yeah, that's, that's real interesting. And how did, um, how did health insurance play a part in all this? Gosh, you know, we didn't really, I have never had, well, eh. no, I've never had to use health insurance abroad. Um, I've never had any problems with that or things got that have gotten to that level. So, so you're just able to, for any care received, you just paid out of pocket. Yeah. Yeah. I have, I have had to get, um, you know, work done in Thailand when I, when I was doing my big kind of world tour, what I would do is use Thailand as a kind of a health base. <laughs> and I'd go out to say Nepal or Africa or whatever. And then we'd fly back into Bangkok and maybe spend um, a couple of weeks or to a month, depending on how sick we would get. 
Um, and because the doctors are really great in Thailand, most of them are French trained doctors. So you can get really good care there. The other thing that's I think is important to mention is, you know, everybody gets like a little bit of a gut thing every once in a while if you're doing third world travel. And the number one recommendation I have with that is to see a local doctor because what they deal with there, um, as far as infections and things like that, is they'll know exactly what's going on. You bring it back to the United States and they could uh, test you for some kind of a parasitic infection or something like that. They'll test you for three or four different parasites that are common in the United States. They're not even fully aware of what's going on in the other countries. If you get tested while you're in the country that you got sick, they will test you for what's there. Such a great point. Yeah. So I really, really do encourage utilizing local healthcare, especially with um, GI stuff. Yeah, that's that's good stuff. And that's again, that's something that I I consider myself a fairly uh, a fairly savvy traveler. And that's not really something that I thought about as as far as turning to the local health providers in the country where you happen to be for the best advice on treating, you know, gastrointestinal issues or viruses that are prevalent in that area. So that's, that's really, really good uh, food for thought. And parents out there, if you're thinking about traveling with your kids, but you're struggling with health issues, just definitely know there's plenty of help, plenty of resources and wonderful medical care to be had all over this wonderful wide world. There you have it, my friend. Part one of my chat with Emily Gaudreau. If you're ready for part two, just head over to DramaticTravels.com slash 017. Check out part two of this episode. And while you're there, of course, check out the Dramatic Travels family Facebook community. Bright yellow banner at the top of the page will take you straight to the Dramatic Travels family Facebook community. We'd love, love, love to have you on board. It's totally free and it's a whole lot of fun. All right, my friend. We're going to see you again very, very soon with part two of episode number 17. We'll see you there.